Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. My name is Crystal, and I am the host of Stories from Palestine podcast, and also a licensed tour guide by the Palestinian Ministry of Tourism. Together with my colleague Salim, we are organizing three 10-day programs this year to discover Palestine. There is still space in the upcoming program mid-March, and also in June and October. We travel around the West Bank, Jerusalem, and Jaffa with small groups, maximum 10 people. We provide historical background, we introduce you to the Palestinian heritage, and we make sure that you get to meet a lot of locals. We stay in family-run hotels, and we also spend two nights with Palestinian families. We do some short hikes, easy hikes, and during the October program, you can also join a day of olive harvesting. If you are interested, then check out our website for more information. I will ask Roberto if he can add a link to the show notes of the podcast, but you can also write it down. It is storiesfrompalestine.info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Manza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guests are Anne Irfan. Anne is a lecturer in interdisciplinary race, gender, and post-colonial studies at University College London, UCL, and Joe Kelsey, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the Lebanese American University. And her research explores the intersections of education, globalization, with a particular focus on education uh, provisions for refugees. In fact, today we are going to talk about a topic which I never really touched upon in the past episodes of Jerusalem Unplugged. We're going to unpack UNRWA, or United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East. UNRWA has often been described as a quasi-government or even a quasi-state for millions of Palestinian refugees across the Middle East. Active since the 1950s and vast virtually, 
contemporaneous with the Palestinian refugee crisis, it provides services more typically uh, the domain of modern nation states, including a large-scale education program, healthcare, municipal service in the camps, and registration procedures. So before we delve into all the topics we're going to talk about today, first of all, let me say, Joe and Anne, welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Hi, thank you. So the first question I want to ask, if you can tell us a little bit more about yourself, about your background, and actually how you came to work on UNRWA. So perhaps we can start with Anne. Sure, thank you, Roberto. So in terms of my academic background, I trained as a historian. I work mostly on history of the modern Middle East, particularly the Mashriq. And how I came to UNRWA was actually not really through academia initially, but through a kind of a bit of a cliche around volunteering in the West Bank. When I was a student, when I was an undergraduate, one summer I volunteered uh, at a camp in Bethlehem at an UNRWA school teaching English, doing an English summer school with kids there. And as I say, it was at an UNRWA school and I was spending a lot of time in the camp and seeing UNRWA installations and UNRWA signage everywhere. And I was really struck by this quite unusual and quite distinctive juxtaposition between the overt Palestinianness of the camp as a space and the presence and consciousness of the UN uh, as an institution, which was often articulated through the specific agency of UNRWA. And then when I came to do my master's degree and I was I was thinking about what I wanted to focus on for my master's thesis, I decided I wanted to zoom in on that a little bit more. Uh, and from there, well, obviously we'll get to this more, I'm sure, but from there I discovered the whole complexities behind the UNRWA archive. As, and as a historian, that was really fascinating for me. And, and that basically set me off on the on years of digging into, digging into UNRWA and particularly digging into the archive. Yeah, I have um, a not dissimilar trajectory, I guess, into this work. Um, I had actually been working um, for different aid agencies um, in the region. And so I was very aware of UNRWA, although I never worked for UNRWA. I worked for um, another UN agency and some NGOs. And UNRWA was always kind of there and, you know, everyone said UNRWA, UNRWA. And it felt like a bit of a big black box, um, you know, that needed to be opened up. But um, I knew that it was particular to the region. Um, and then I really got very interested. Um, I was in Lebanon in 2011, 2012. Um, my husband's Lebanese. So spending a lot of time in Lebanon. And at that time, the conflict in Syria was starting. And what I was really noticing, this is about, so I'm thinking about embarking on my PhD, and there was this discourse happening kind of in the background talking about, well, you know, but this has never happened before. Um, the number of refugees, this is unprecedented. We have no kind of model or blueprint for how to handle this. And this was coming from... Um, it was coming from Lebanese politicians. You're hearing it also from Jordanian politicians. And you were also hearing it from the aid community. And having worked in the region for quite some time, I was just really struck by the ahistoricism of all of these aid discourses and what was happening in the media. Um, and that got me really interested in thinking about, well, clearly it's not the case. So what is this history? Um, and what can it offer? Um, potentially not just for understanding the Palestinian question, but also what was happening in terms of Syrian refugees in the region. Now, because we're going to talk about UNRWA, 
I was wondering if you can tell us in your different ways actually what UNRWA is and how it works. Yes, that's a really, really good question. Um, I mean, I think UNRWA is just this bundle of, um, just this huge bundle of complexities. It's, in some ways, I think the most important question to be asking is what is UNRWA? It's, it's certainly a question that I keep coming back to, um, in part because of these huge contradictions. So, you know, as Anne touched on, it's a global agency, right? It's this UN agency, but it's also specific to Palestinians. It's set up as a temporary agency, but we're still here, um, you know, nearing sort of towards 80 years. Um, and in practice, you know, it it runs services, so it looks different than a lot of UN agencies. And in some ways, it's quite autarkic, right? Like a lot of Palestinians work for UNRWA, but it's also massively incomplete. Like it doesn't provide anything close to the kind of public services that you'd expect a government to provide. Um, it's also rhetorically apolitical, but it functions in a very, very political way. Um, so I feel like this question of what is UNRWA is really the one to be kind of asking, and the history is so important to understand understanding those contradictions um, and in part the sort of the history that it was set up to serve such a different purpose than the one it's ended up playing um, and I think it really stands as this paradigm of kind of 1950s modernization policy right and how um, how at the time coming out of the second world war the global community was thinking about aid and in particular the kind of economics first imperative on it. Yeah, and I think it's worth adding as well on, on this point of, of what is UNRWA. Um, the fact that there's lots of different elements and lots of different actors involved in how we might conceptualize or understand UNRWA as an organization. As Joe mentioned, a, a lot of Palestinians work for UNRWA. The, the vast majority of UNRWA's staff are themselves Palestinian. But at senior management level, employees are pretty much entirely Westerners, certainly from the global north. Um, there's also the donors, the donors who fund UNRWA's work, who are or historically have mostly been predominantly, again, Western states. Uh, there are the host states who also facilitate UNRWA's work. So there's all these different actors that make up UNRWA or that shape UNRWA's work, and they don't necessarily have exactly the same motives or exactly the same priorities or interests. So when we speak about what is UNRWA, uh, the answer might vary depending on which of those elements we're speaking to as well. And that brings me to, to the question I wanted to ask you um, about how Palestinians sees uh, UNRWA uh, and the work that has been done by UNRWA basically in the past eight years. And perhaps, Anne, you can also tell us a little bit more about your experience since you volunteered in, in a camp and see how you interacted with them and you know, how perhaps the younger Palestinians, since you, you were working in education, how they, you know, felt about uh, the activities uh, that were offered by UNRWA? Yeah, so I wouldn't want to speak too much to, to what Palestinians um, think about UNRWA, partly being conscious of my own positionality as, as a non-Palestinian, but, but also because I think there's often a danger in these conversations that, that we end, we can risk coming away with quite an essentialized view. I think there's probably a couple of things I would, I would flag in response to that question, and, and I'm, I'm sure Joe would want to add to it as well. That the first thing being that, as, as Joe just mentioned, a lot of 
UNRWA staff are themselves Palestinian. So I think viewing UNRWA and quote unquote the Palestinians as separate entities uh, is not entirely accurate. There's there's a lot of overlap in those two between between those two groups or between those those two actors. That's one thing to keep in mind. And then it's also worth noting that um, when we speak about the Palestinians, obviously we're talking about millions of people, but we're also we're also talking about um, people who may have very different relationships to UNRWA. So there are obviously Palestinians as a whole. There are also Palestinian refugees. The majority of Palestinians are refugees, but not every Palestinian is a refugee. And then within that group, there are Palestinian refugees who actually live in the areas where UNRWA operates. UNRWA only operates in Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and the occupied Palestinian territories or occupied Palestine. So you could be a Palestinian refugee, say, living in Egypt or Iraq or further afield in Europe or, or the US, and you wouldn't be receiving any services from UNRWA and your relationship to UNRWA is therefore likely to be quite different. And that's before we even get into the differences in how UNRWA operates, let's say, in Syria as opposed to the West Bank. So, so there's all these different contingencies and all these different dynamics uh, at play in, in driving what is not just a singular relationship, but but lots a set of relationships, really. Yeah, I think I would. Um, I mean, certainly the geographical element shapes, I think, how how people view UNRWA and how they experience UNRWA, right? Because UNRWA does provide these services, and so there is much more of a kind of direct relationship. Um, along with the number of Palestinians that are employed for UNRWA, there's this very direct relationship. Um, thinking about the schools, right? It's your first point of contact um, from a very young age with something like a state. And for Palestinians, it, it's the first point of contact with UNRWA, right? Which is not a state, but it's um, certainly, you know, very, very important agency. I also think it's, you know, it's important to think about how um, the relationships changed over time. I don't think it's a static relationship. And it, you know, so not only does it differ by by region, um, certainly in Lebanon, right, it would differ by whether you were in Beirut versus whether you were in the south um, or the north and the different experiences that come with that. Um, but I think it has also changed a lot over time. And so, you know, if you look at something like UNRWA in, during the first intifada in the West Bank, I think that's a very, very different relationship that Palestinians had with the agency than thinking about um, how Palestinians in Syria experience the agency or Palestinians in Lebanon today or at at the same time during the 1980s, for example. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, I also wouldn't feel comfortable talking about one kind of relationship, but I think just to add to that multiplicity of relationships, the complexity that time and space gives. Now, before we move forward to, uh, you know, discussing archives and other uh, issues about UNRWA, actually I wanted to ask you something because I'm sure that most of the listeners are familiar with the status of uh, Palestinian refugees, but uh, I must admit that sometimes, given that uh, uh, Jerusalem Unplugged is generally listened to a variety of different people. Uh, if you can give us a sense of the legal status of Palestinian refugees. Sure. Well, I mean, this is this could probably be an entire podcast in itself. Um, the leap... It, it depends slightly on exactly what you're referring to, but essentially uh, Palestinians are recognised as refugees under international law. 
Um, they have, however, a slightly unusual status in terms of international conventions because, by virtue of the fact that they are served by UNRWA and not UNHCR, which puts them in a unique position among the world's refugees. So UNRWA was established by the UN General Assembly at the end of 1949. Uh, it began operations a few months later in 1950. And that's significant because it means that UNRWA was created and, and began work both before the 1951 Refugee Convention and before UNHCR came along. So it predates both of those things. And for various reasons, the decision was made that UNRWA would not be merged with UNHCR once UNHCR had arrived on the scene. So it's retained this distinctiveness. Um, nevertheless, Palestinians are recognized internationally as being refugees. And one thing it's probably worth flagging in view of all of the, the controversy and misinformation that exists about this, uh, pal the those Palestinians who were born in exile are also recognized as refugees. But crucially, that is not actually distinctive or unique to the Palestinians. That is a standard convention among projected refugee situations. And we can find that with various other examples of long-term uh, refugees as well. So that actually is not unique to the Palestinians, although you will often hear it erroneously said that, that, that it's unusual. Yeah, and I think actually UNHCR ended up coming out a couple of years ago and making a statement along those lines to say actually, um, you know, refugees in Dadaab, Kakuma, in Kenya, in Colombia, it's exactly the same, right? We're looking at multi-generational situations here. It's just what's um, different about the Palestinian case is that it's been so long that that sort of started, that, um, that particular facet of law was perhaps more obvious sooner. Um, I think the other thing to kind of um, understand the complexities around the, the legal situation is to know that UN, UNRWA is part of a two-part regime. And so it was set up alongside an organization called the UN Conciliation Council for Palestine. And sort of going back to its history and the idea that UNRWA was... Um, very much founded as a job creation program to kind of find a bit of a backdoor solution to, to the refugee question by providing jobs and sort of assuming that this would essentially dissipate the question of, of the refugees. The Conciliation Council was really given the political mandate. Um, so, you know, they sort of bifurcated this economic and this political um, solution, quote, unquote. And the Conciliation Council was really supposed to negotiate, right, the, what would happen in terms of the right of return based on UN 194. And that didn't happen because the stakeholders, you know, at the time really just didn't want to play ball with it. And so UNCCP is a big part of this question. And together, UNRWA and UNCCP, should have created a much more robust um, regime for Palestinians. But because UNCCP doesn't really operate anymore, I think it still submits a kind of very nominal report once a year to the, to the General Assembly or the Security Council. Um, but because it's essentially non-operational, you have what a lot of scholars, um, Susan Akram in particular, has coined a protection gap. Um, which is essentially where Palestinians are not covered by these questions of legal protections. Because you, you talked about, uh, you know, Amzul history and also the question that also Palestinians of different generations uh, basically acquire the status of refugees. I wanted to ask you something about UNRWA in the, uh, in the long term. I'm not asking you about a judgment, but I, I was curious about your thoughts about how UNRWA changed throughout the past 80 years and how it adapted to the 
you know, different times, different administrations, uh, uh, you know, and also general world events and also understanding of uh, uh, Palestinian refugees. And let me give you a very quick example. I remember growing up in, in Italy, uh, you know, late 70s, early 80s, and uh, there was this strong attachment to the Palestinians, particularly with the First Intifada, and Palestinian refugees were somehow cherished and, you know, but then from the early 2000s, it just disappeared. We had changing governments. Uh, there was the era of the first Berlusconi, the, the country turned right. Uh, nobody knows anything. And so I wonder also how these kind of events may change the perception and the work of UNRWA in, in the long run. Yeah, I think I was at Italia 86 when the World Cup was dedicated to Palestinians, quite an important symbolic moment. Um, I mean, certainly I think... Um, you know, UNRWA, that question that we've sort of posed, right, what is UNRWA, at least the one that we we grapple with a lot. I think the reason that's so difficult to answer is because you have so many different kind of power constituencies um, operating in this sort of shell of an agency, right? So UNRWA is not at all static. It changes um, based on, um, you know, what's happening in the donor community, what's happening with the Palestinian community. UNRWA in Lebanon in the 70s, with the PLO being as strong as it was, is a very, very different agency than um, UNRWA in Syria, for example, um, or in Jordan. Um, and so I think, you know, these ebbs and flows, they really are shaped by, you know, they're certainly shaped by geopolitics, um, as we know now with the defunding of the agency um, and the way that the kind of the American government, along with others, have been, you know, really seeking to kind of take away the resources of the agency. But they're also shaped by regional politics, hugely um, politics of the host states and by Palestinian politics. Um, and so, you know, UNRWA during the first intifada, I think, um, I, and I believe that um, Ben Schiff talks about this in his book on UNRWA, where he talks about how the perceptions of the Palestinians in kind of Western media really shifted from what happened in Lebanon to what was happening in the Intifada um, in the West Bank, how people perceived Palestinians. And that led to a huge amount of new kind of funding coming in for the agency, which obviously shaped um, the kind of programs that it could do and what it could do. And, and it's not... Um, you know, it's not for nothing that that's when you see UNRWA really dig down and basically try to take on a little bit more of a protection mandate, although it's certainly nothing like the level of protection that the refugees need. Yeah, I think it's also worth um, flagging how UNRWA has, in addition to uh, various sort of international stakeholders, UNRWA has also been to some degree, maybe unintentionally, uh, at the behest of, of Palestinians themselves. And as Joe mentioned, uh, it's it's had to also adapt in response to changing Palestinian politics and to shifts in priorities among different Palestinian actors over the decades as well. Um, there are many consistent threads, obviously, in terms of Palestinian politics and Palestinian priorities since the Nakba, but there, there have also been shifts across both time and space, and, and UNRWA has um, has also had to had to react to those. I mean, I think one uh, constant kind of pendulum swing that that UNRWA's uh, <laughs> that has characterised UNRWA's history is this move between um, response to emergency and then slightly longer term work that's more akin to what you might call development and development work and. 
UNRWA has pretty much always going back between those two. Um, and actually, I think in the last couple of years, UNRWA senior management have said that that uh, the agency is now working in a state of emergency in four of the five fields, the, the exception being Jordan. But in the other four fields, it says it considers itself to be working in a state of emergency. Um, and so there's also this slightly strange juxtaposition, I think, in UNRWA's work, that it it has an underlying attempt to do something a little bit more stable and long term as far as a temporary agency can. But then pretty regularly, it gets hit by various um, new crises across the fields. Another interesting uh, question about particularly the understanding of UNRWA and the question of Palestinian refugees is that I had the feeling that up until a few weeks ago, uh, a lot of people never thought, uh, at least in recent times, that actually there are Palestinian refugee camps like within Jerusalem, for instance, and it's only because events around Shuafat that then they were reported by international outlets. I, I mean, I remember some people saying, oh, are there refugee camps in Jerusalem? Yes, there are actually geographically they are part of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought it was very interesting that uh, for a brief moment, the whole question like popped up again. It disappeared very quickly, but uh, I thought it was like very important to give a sense, uh, you know, sort of give publicity uh, to actually those refugee camps. Uh, let me go back to uh, sort of the main bulk of your work, which is very much about the archives. Uh, so in recent times, um, scholars like yourselves, obviously, I'm thinking about Mesna Kato, Bishara Dumani and others, uh, have begun to pay attention to archives, not just as a source for and of history, but also uh, in terms of social justice. And so I was wondering if, if you can tell us a little bit more about this idea to look at archives from the point of view of epistemic justice, of uh, social justice. Well, archives in my view, I would say, are really inherently entangled with questions of, of both epistemic and social justice because archives, by their very existence, speak to questions about whose voices are recorded, whose voices are listened to, who is represented, who is silenced, and then on the flip side, who is granted access to those voices and to those records. And these are questions that very much come to the fore when we think about UNRWA's archives, uh, which are uh, not only, or not only can be very difficult to access, but also quite selective in what is preserved and what is not preserved. And then what adds another layer to all of these dynamics is the fact that in the case of the Palestinians, of course, we're talking about a people who are displaced, dispossessed and dispersed and therefore do not have a, a unified, comprehensive national archive uh, of the people themselves. And in that context, the archive of an institution like UNRWA becomes even more important or potentially even more important. Yeah, and I think, you know, for me, um, this question of silencing is so important because of how much Palestinians have had their voices silenced, right? Um, on the global stage, regional stage, um, who gets to speak. And so the question of what UNRWA's archive, who it represents is a really important part, I think, of, of understanding how, how these silences work, um, both in the kind of obvious ways, right? Who gets to have access to this archive, what's included in the archive, um, but also I think in some of the more kind of implicit ways in which documents are curated and they're classified. Um, it's, you know, it's quite 
I think it's quite, in some ways, those dimensions of the archive tell you a little bit more than some of the materials sometimes, right? Um, I certainly found them to be equally important in in terms of interpreting um, what this archive and this history meant. Um, The importance that the UN accords to particular events, I think, might be quite different than the importance that the refugees themselves accord to certain events. And those two things are not synonymous because you often don't hear Palestinian voices in this this UNRWA archive. And that brings me to the question of a you know, sort of the material aspect of the archives. So the archives are based in Amman, uh, even though material is scattered around. Uh, and so I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the history of uh, the archive itself and, you know, the material. You mentioned accessibility, for instance, who is allowed and who is not allowed to access the material. And also perhaps in, at large, what exactly these archives uh, can tell us? Yeah, <laughs> the archive is currently in Amman, but it's been moved several times. Um, so it's been moved from, initially UNRWA was headquartered in Beirut. The archive was moved, I believe, between 75 and 78. UNRWA made the decision, um, a little stretched out decision. Um, they weren't quite sure what, where the situation was headed. And so they ended up moving the agency to Vienna. and The archive moved with it. Um it also then subsequently moved to Gaza and then the bulk. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Kavit has moved to Amman. I just want to kind of caveat this by saying, actually, um, 
I've done a lot of digging on this and it's sometimes unclear what constitutes the archive. I mean, we're talking about the central registry here. I've heard all sorts of things from people saying that, oh no, but there are definitely archives still in Lebanon related to the country program. Um, I've not found much evidence of this, um, but I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. I think this question of sort of uh, people who's, um, you know, have been dispersed and their history has been fractured is, is reflected in the ways that the archive has been has been geographically dispersed. Um, so that sort of is the bulk of the central registry, what's happened there. But it's, you know, the archive is also not necessarily... Um, I don't think it's a standalone archive, right? UNRWA as an agency has had a lot of dealings with other UN agencies. And so you will also find um, files and documents that are directly relevant to UNRWA that are stored um, in other UN archives. Yeah, and I think I would add that the the organisation that exists or the lack thereof in terms of how documents have been preserved across various UN archives also speaks to it, at least implicitly, if not explicitly, to some of these questions of epistemic justice as well, because you it really can be kind of like feeling your way in the dark, trying to identify and locate certain documents and certain sources. Um, it seems on occasion to have been quite haphazard, which, you know, for example, there will be documents that uh, if you try to access them in one archive, one UN archive, you'll be told, you know, they're classified and you can't access them. But then if you try and access those exact same documents in another one, you'll be told you can take photos of them. So there's not necessarily a very um, coherent approach overall to the archives. And I think it's, it's also worth adding if we think about questions of accessibility, so as Joe said, the central registry is in Amman, which at least in theory, and I emphasize in theory, uh, would be accessible to many Palestinians and, and many Arabs in the region. But let's say you need one of these documents I just mentioned that maybe is not in Amman, maybe it's at the UN headquarters archive in New York, and then you need to be able to travel to New York. And if you are on a Global South passport, that's going to be a lot more difficult but you might be from one of the communities who actually has, you know, arguably the greatest right to access these documents. So, so there are questions of accessibility, I think, both in terms of official policy and just in terms of, of the politics and the international dynamics of, of where things are located and, and how you can actually get to them. I think there's also onerous bureaucracy on top of that. So we actually met, um, we found each other because we were both trying to work in onerous <laughs> archive and, um, it's very useful to have a bit of a support system, to be really honest. It's um, not very transparent, at least when our experience yeah. at the time was that it was not very transparent to access the archive. Um, interestingly, many UNRWA staff didn't know that it existed, um, which I think is also kind of a really interesting and telling um, sign of how the agency operates. And the kind of procedures and the requirements to access it were incredibly opaque. You have to be quite um, determined to access it. And, you know, because because there aren't sort of transparent procedures, it's I, I don't want to say on what basis it's decided, but um, I certainly at different points had to submit um, descriptions of my research 
to get it past different kind of approval processes. Um, so one with the kind of department that I was interested in researching around education, another one with the Office of the Commissioner General, and the advice that I was sort of given variously by folks that had previously worked in the archive was um, make that description as politically innocuous as you possibly can. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that, um, that there's there's a lot that you can unpack with that. But the, the procedures for accessing, I, I do consider myself extremely lucky that I was able to do that um, and access the funding, right, to wait, wait around for these decisions and be able to travel like that without a visa. Um, so there's also that dimension of the agency's own politics and bureaucracy. Yeah, I mean, I would I would um, say that I every time I visited the Central Registry Archive, the procedure was different, um, and the person, the contact person, was different. Um, I haven't been there in a few years now. Uh, not you know, last time I was there was before COVID, so I can't speak to the situation now. But certainly. During uh, the visits I made, there was never an archivist in post. And because of that, you would sort of just get pushed between different staff members who usually would find they'd just been assigned responsibility for the archive on top of their regular job, um, which, of course, added to the fact that it was quite a chaotic process and it, and it was really not those individuals' fault at all. Um, but it, it added to the opacity, to the confusion. Um, it would, it was things like, I mean, I think Joe had similar experiences, you know, one time you'd be told you could take pictures, then you couldn't take pictures, but they could, they could scan them and send them to you. Then you could take photocopies. It was, it was always quite inconsistent. And I think, uh, a major reason for that was because there, there was no archivist and there was no coherent policy, um, and then in turn, there was a lot of nervousness around who uh, around giving access to people for fear of what what might what they might then report, which chimes with what Joe mentioned about the suggestion to make your research sound as politically innocuous as possible. Now, as you were talking about all of these issues, actually, I was reminded by a couple of things. One that uh, it's not only obviously UNRWA. But for instance, in Jerusalem, there is a famous uh, religious institution, and I don't want to mention names, but, uh, you know, they didn't allow me because I don't belong to that in denomination to see mm -hmm. the documents. But uh, the ridiculous thing is that the same exact document, as you mentioned, then is available in the British archives because uh, there was an exchange of documents. And uh, here we are. Obviously, I couldn't see maybe the notes or the rest, but it's the same issue. And as uh, Joe uh, you were saying about the, the question of uh, they don't understand the material they have. That reminds me again, the big question of the Jerusalem archives, for instance, uh, which basically are sitting in this uh, bunker beneath the Jerusalem municipality. Now they're being moved away. Nobody knows exactly where. Speculation is that somewhere in the West Bank. Um, but they don't know exactly what they have. And, you know, all the time I worked there and I was asking for material because there's a kind of catalog uh you know then the reality is that, that maybe in the catalog it says yes you have ottoman documents and then they gave me boxes with uh utility bills from the 1960s and uh, <laughs> I, I wasn't sure exactly why and again you know the director who's a very nice person he's an engineer and he doesn't know anything about archiving so I feel like there's a trend here. I mean, it's not just uh, UNVA, but I think there's a general trend possibly in the Middle East about archiving, access, and also understanding to a, to a point the value of that material. 
because we have the wrong people, but, in, you know, in the wrong job, basically. But I, I think in the case of UNRWA, I mean, I can't speak to the Jerusalem archives. I haven't I haven't worked with them or, or attempted to work with them. But in the case of UNRWA, I, I would say it's actually not necessarily related to the context of the Middle East. It's, it's the fact that essentially UNRWA has not been provided with the necessary funding uh, that is needed, say, to hire an archivist or to put in place uh, proper archival procedures. Um, and I think this this ultimately comes down to bigger questions around how UNRWA is funded and, and the problems with that entire with that entire process and what is seen as important or not important. Yeah, I agree. I think it really speaks to um, a certain self conception among UNRWA's kind of upper bureaucracy, um, sort of you know this higher level cadre of, of Western decision makers. Um, who really view the agency in terms of its kind of underlying humanitarian function or the function that has come to dominate UNRWA, even if it wasn't its intended function. And if you're in that kind of a mentality, right, um, or you're thinking in that kind of way, um, you know, you're you're addressing these crises right now more than ever, arguably, um, though I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, this is the first time UNRWA has had this much of an expansive crisis, Um but I think, you know, it speaks to this sense of kind of like you make decisions, you do things, you think about the documentation for later. Right. That's a longer term issue. And it's not what I think is the dominant kind of work culture um, in UNRWA. I think also, you know, there are political sensitivities. Right. This is an agency that day in, day out is dealing with um misinterpretations, bad media, press, a lot of pressures, right, on it to, I mean, essentially intended to kind of pressure it to, to close or to stop functioning. And so if you don't know what's in the archive and you don't understand the value of kind of critical reflective scholarship that could be drawing out some of these historical lessons, you're going to be much less interested in opening them up to people who can do that work, right? That's, it's both a long game and it's a risky, it, it, there's an inherent risk. And so that's not to, you know, that's not to sort of let them off the hook in any way. But I think to the extent that archive preservation is decentralized in the UN, if you're facing a massive funding crisis, unless a donor comes in and says, we're going to really pay long term for you to preserve this archive, it's it's going to be very hard for you to make that case internally. And I just want to make uh, like a, a correction of what I said earlier, because I think I came out a little bit orientalistic in a way. Uh, I, I was interviewing a few people discussing archives, um, particularly of religious institutions or private archives. And, you know, one thing that came out was that these archives tend to be highly protected. They don't want to share the material for good reasons sometimes, because they're afraid that they may be used against themselves. Um, and as I was part of this large project, Open Jerusalem, this is one of the barrier that we bump into, right? Try to get the trust to get the material, put it out, contextualize it. And on the other hand, we also bump into, again, public archives that felt, uh, you know, run by, as I said, you know, people who, with no skills or knowledge how to run actually an archive and understanding the material, which made it the, the opposite in a sense, you know, totally unreliable and uneasy to access for completely different reasons. Uh, yeah, and I, I think, sorry to interrupt you, Roger, but just to very quickly add, I think, I think again, this really stems from the fact that there isn't a proper process. And because of that, there's just a concern that if you're allowed into the archive, who knows what you might stumble upon. 
because things haven't really been been organized in any kind of systemic way. And that brings me to the next question. So what exactly do we find in the UNV archives? And uh, you, you, Joe, mentioned earlier silencing. So who has a vested interest in, you know, silencing that material? So there's, um, it really depends, I think. So first of all, I can only really speak to the education files. And I think maybe something to clarify is that um, UNRWA decides what you get access to. So you describe your research, you send them this sort of general blurb about what you're looking at. They send you back a list. If you're lucky like us, you come across like-minded folks doing research and you say, hey, have you got the same list? Like, are there things that might be missing? If you've been able to fortunately access, for example, archives in Paris at UNESCO or New York, you might also say, actually, I know there's a little bit more to this story. Um, so you're, you know, your sent that um, is kind of the first port of call. So I can only really speak to um, what we were able to see in the central registry, which is um, those things that are tagged as relevant to education. And then it really depends, um, I think, on the period that you're talking about a little bit. So for the early years, like the 1950s, you're going to find a mass of code cables. Um, and oftentimes you have to piece together, they split them into like incoming code cables and outgoing code cables. And so you're kind of reading across these folders to piece together, um, you know, to piece together the messages as you also get a lot of official correspondence. So that will be correspondence with other UN agencies, especially in the early years when UNRWA was less, I'd say less autonomous perhaps than, than you might think of it these days. Um, and you'll get a lot of official correspondence to, to folks in UN General Assembly, for example, other UN agencies, internal communications between UNRWA's field and its headquarters, um, and, and memos and meeting notes were kind of the bulk of things. You do occasionally, um, at different periods of time, get different kinds of documents. So, for example, um, in the 1970s, uh, UNESCO, which played a really key role in setting up UNRWA's education program, told UNRWA essentially that it had to send it regular situation reports um, on the situation. So for the first part of the Lebanese war until 82, you get quite um, kind of really quite interesting granular information on what was happening, what was happening to the schools at the time, the strikes that were happening, the damage that was done to the schools. Um, so that's kind of, I think, a lot of bureaucratic and administrative information. Um, I'll just end by saying that the bulk of it is in English, which for an agency that's overwhelmingly staffed by Palestinians tells you quite a lot if we're going back to that question of epistemic justice, injustice. Yeah. And actually, just to add in terms of um, one piece of content that I, I remember finding in the archive uh, that really speaks to that was a, a, a big uh, issue that occurred in the late 1970s, there was a, a clash between some Palestinian members of staff and management when um, these staff protested at the UN censoring of uh, actions by the PFLP, uh, plane hijackings. And um, there was a there were all of these communications between senior and uh, management over how are they going to respond to all of these um, all of these uh, complaints from Palestinian members. And uh, I remember really clearly reading one communication from the Commissioner General where he basically said, like, I've been sent two different translations of this letter from the Palestinian staff members. Which one is more accurate? Which which really speaks to the limitations here. If you have someone running overall in charge of an agency that operates in the Arabic speaking world and he's essentially unable to communicate 
with uh, his staff over uh, an extremely controversial and sensitive subject because he doesn't speak the language. Yeah, I, I think the other thing sort of just um, to your point on silencing is that sometimes the trail just goes completely cold, right? And you sort of, even if you're looking at um, what else is stored in Paris or in New York, it just goes completely cold. And I think it um, it speaks to actually how a lot of UNRWA's decision-making is done on the fly and is not recorded formally. One of the really interesting things for me um, about UNRWA is actually the extent to which it doesn't make decisions and it really does try to step away in some ways from making decisions. Of course, it still ends up being massively consequential. Um, but, you know, a good example would be around um, curriculum policy, for example, where you hear today, this is like a real flashpoint, right? UNRWA is often um, severely criticized for what it's teaching in its schools and its textbooks. And the curriculum policy that's in place is that Palestinians learn the curriculum of the host states. There's no official recorded policy that sets this out that doesn't mean that it's not become the policy right i mean this has dominated the agency's education program for the better part of 80 years but try to find the actual policy document i mean you're not you might find reference to it in minutes of conferences that were held back in the 50s and then you'll find references again with people who've got sort of an institutional memory having been consulted when the question comes up again in the 60s but the sense that you get is actually a lot of consequential decisions are made verbally in part because they can be very politically sensitive or just because that's the culture of the agency. Um, it doesn't see itself as having this long-term role and it certainly doesn't see itself as a policymaker or engaging in planning in that way. I have a few more questions and one is for you, uh, Anne. Um, so going back to the 2017 Ibrahim Dakak Award for Outstanding Essay on Jerusalem, um, awarded by the Jerusalem Quarterly. So the title of your article was, Is Jerusalem International or Palestinian? Rethinking UNGA Resolution 181. So I was wondering if you can answer that question again five years later. And so perhaps highlighting if anything has changed in your views. Thank you for the question. I wouldn't say anything has changed exactly, but I, I think I actually reread the article uh, this morning, having, having not read it in a while, because it's, it's been, it was published in 2017, I think I actually wrote it in 2016. Um, I think, as I say, I it's not necessarily that my mind has changed. But if I were to write it again now, I would definitely dig deeper and push further on how I conceptualize the term international. And what I really mean by that term. Uh, I do talk about this a little bit in the essay, but, but I think there's a lot more scope to talk about the fact that the term international is, is in many ways, you know, inherently a flawed term, but also it's a term that can have many different meanings depending on who is invoking it. So in the context of that essay, I'm largely talking about uh, Western and colonial powers invoking uh, fairly limited understandings of, of what they call international really as a way of preserving or furthering their own power and their own interests. But there are alternate 
conceptualizations of what is international and internationalization and internationalism uh, that really speak more to solidarity across the global south, to anti-colonial movements. And those forms of internationalism have been uh, invoked and deployed sometimes very effectively by Palestinians. So I think I would probably, uh, were I to write the essay now, uh, engage a little bit more with with those tensions around the term international and also maybe the, the question of whether international versus Palestinian is is necessarily mutually exclusive exclusive is something I would I would explore a little bit more um, in my my book which is coming out next year I talk a lot more about these different forms of the international and the ways in which at times, Palestinian activists and Palestinian nationalists have actually seen Palestinian and international as very much going hand in hand. Yeah, and I think there's a difference. I mean, sometimes people misunderstand the term international with the idea of a cosmopolitan, right. um, w- which is very problematic. I mean, Jerusalem certainly had periods of uh, high cosmopolitanism, you know, particularly actually uh, under Jordanian administration. Jerusalem was extremely cosmopolitan for a lot of people traveling, but there's a tension here with the word international. You're absolutely yeah. right there. Uh, Joe, I have a question for you. Now, you, you already mentioned education, which is your area of expertise. Um, I didn't really cover much this in the podcast and certainly in uh, terms of uh, refugee camps. So I was wondering if you can give us a sense of the educational system and the education provided to Palestinians in refugee camps. Sure. Um, that's a big question. <laughs> so, you know, UNRWA's um, education program, I, I think it has, just has this really interesting history because it's not in the blueprints for the agency. And so it really speaks to how these different kind of contests, essentially, between key stakeholders have um, played out and sort of they settled on education. Right. And I think that in large part that was driven by Palestinians demanding education. But of course, the content of education and the form that it takes um, continues to be a very contested question. So UNRWA, um, the way that it describes its education program is that it's aligned to the host state. So this is one of those examples, as I was sort of talking about earlier, about how UNRWA doesn't always sort of assume responsibility or directly make decisions. Um, I think the education program, the way that it's set up, reflects that a little bit. So since the 50s, very early on, um, the education, the curriculum that's provided or taught in UNRWA school is aligned to the host states. So effectively, you're talking about um, five or four different curricula, right, depending on um, sort of pre-PA, post-PA um, Palestinian curriculum, um, because prior to that, it was Jordanian and Egyptian. So you're already um, sort of talking about a very fragmented education program. Now, UNRWA will tell you that it does teach, um, you know, it does teach kind of enrichment materials that are designed to provide Palestinians with a sense of their culture and their heritage and their history. Um, That is a very contested point among Palestinians, um, many of whom will say, actually, no, we didn't actually receive that in our schools. The other point, I think, is that once you align an education system to the host states, you're essentially teaching the national assessments of that host state. So Palestinian children attending UNRWA schools in Lebanon are sitting for the Lebanese brevet. They are learning in English and French as a first language, sort of 
alongside Arabic as their first language, as language of instruction, I should say. Um, UNRWA does not provide comprehensive secondary education, except in Lebanon it offers a limited amount. So it's also, again, it's another example of how UNRWA is um, sort of this this system, right, except for it's still dependent on the children being able to access education elsewhere. So, you know, I think this, it speaks to how UNRWA is um, simultaneously kind of sort of confined and often considered its own special bubble. And yet in reality, you have um, these connections to different systems. Um, The other thing I think, you know, that's worth pointing out about UNRWA schools is that although UNRWA administers the schools, the teachers themselves are Palestinian. And a lot of the current debates around education that have really ramped up the last 20 years, but in particular the last 10 years, have been around this question of neutrality, right? And any education um, expert is going to tell you that it's just impossible for education to be neutral. Um, And obviously, I think the same goes for aid, right? So there's this idea coming from up high and that is constantly told to the donors, we're neutral in our education and the education that we provide. But that puts the teachers in a really really difficult position, right? They're being asked to kind of essentially censor out a lot of really important information from what's taught to the kids. And yet they're also living, um, you know, they're living the worst aspects of what it is to to be a refugee in a lot of these countries. And so they're not able to be critical about the situation. Um, They're told they have to be neutral. Previously, before neutrality, that used to be very much um, what the host states used to say, um, that they wouldn't allow the teachers to teach off of records. So you've got all of these different pressures that are existing um, on students, on teachers, all the way through to kind of the administration level um, and whether UNRWA gets funding for its education um, system. So those are kind of some of the the big picture points. But I I do want to mention something else um, that I think is really important, and it goes back to what Anne said earlier about, um, you know, who does UNRWA cater to, right? You can also apply the same kind of logic to education. Education is much more than schooling. And so Palestinians are accessing education in many different ways um, in the camps and outside of the camps through community centers, through different civil society organizations that are really trying to plug some of these gaps. And they play a hugely, hugely important role. But they are... um, they're local. They tend to be, you know, different across the different fields. And of course, the students still do deserve to be able to be taught a, a proper narrative um, of their situation. Um, and so as much as those initiatives are incredibly important, and of course, kids are learning what they live, um, this question still looms really large about whether there is a way to have a more unified understanding of Palestine and what it means to be Palestinian in taught in UNRWA schools. And that brings me to the, the last questions very much. So we talked about several uh, things and issues. And uh, I was wondering if there's anything that we didn't discuss about your own work or UNRWA in general that you want to just mention as a final point. I think the, the only thing that comes to mind for me is I would just uh, expand Joe's comment about neutrality in the context of education to UNRWA's positionality as a whole. Um, as Joe said, the, the whole concept of neutrality is uh, essentially quite problematic, certainly with regard to education and arguably with regard to aid per se. In the case of UNRWA, it, it's 
often conflated neutrality with its claims to be apolitical. Um, both of those things are, are quite nebulous concepts that can have various different meanings. And in the case of UNRWA, being neutral and being apolitical has generally been interpreted to mean, uh, you know, being Western. And in terms of content of the archives, this is something that's talked about very explicitly that the Palestinian uh, employees can't be promoted or can't be appointed to senior positions because they won't be able to be apolitical or they won't be able to be neutral. Obviously, that carries with it the assumption that uh, Westerners or people from the global north, predominantly white people, are, are somehow, uh, you know, untouched by by these concerns and somehow uh, have their own positionality is, is irrelevant. Um, and I think that's actually a theme that continues to this day in how UNRWA operates and in a lot of the discourse around UNRWA. Yeah, I I would just sort of double down on the neutrality point. I think it's really, um, you know, it really speaks to the kind of implicit power structure in the agency, right? I mean, critical scholars, many, many critical scholars talk about, you know, if you're neutral in the face of this type of power imbalance and inequality and inequity, then, you know, you are, you're, you're basically kind of maintaining a status quo. And I think UNRWA is in many ways, a very extreme example of the maintenance of a status quo. Um, and that's why the agency is often, very often in a kind of standoff between its different constituents, mm. um, which, you know, is certainly not to the, to the benefit of the refugees, but also means that, you know, you can simultaneously hold the view that UNRWA needs to reform, but it shouldn't shut down. Those are not, um, you know, those are not necessarily, those are not mutually exclusive positions. And I think it's important to underline that, that that, that view could be held by Palestinians. Um, it could be held by others who look at UNRWA. The other, I guess the other kind of question on my mind about UNRWA is what its current archiving practices are, given um what I saw about the knowledge of the archive and how the archives preserved. I haven't come across staff who are aware of contemporary archiving practices, um, perhaps some official emails here and there, but a lot of the, you know, a lot of what you get from UNRWA's central registry, at least the files that I saw related to education, are these kind of little notes, um, these drafts, and then people crossing things out and saying, actually, you know, don't put that in, it's too contentious. <clears throat> Meeting minutes and notes that you probably wouldn't get with current email archiving. And I think that's a really important question, thinking about kind of future generations coming to understand this incredibly consequential period for the agency, um, which is just in a permanent existential crisis. <laughs> These were Anne Irfan, lecturer in an interdisciplinary race, gender, and postcolonial studies at UCL London, and Joe Kelsey, a postdoctoral researcher at the Lebanese American University. Anne, Joe, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.